0: Amen. Great to be with you. It's kind of a big Sunday for me because we're finishing the book of Second Samuel this morning. So, if you've been with us all through these studies, um, you've probably, like me, really enjoyed digging into the life of David, the man after God's heart, the the guy who was Jesus bragged about being related to him. And so, seeing all of his ups and downs has been really fascinating and instructive for me. But Now we're coming, now, if you read into uh, 1 Kings, the next book, you'll see the first few chapters wrapping up David's life, basically as he's dying and Solomon's taking over, but 2 Samuel kind of wraps it up. Uh, 1 Chronicles, in a parallel passage, gives a little more details, but basically here's David's life and here's how it ends. Now, chapter 24 begins by saying with the conjunction, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, which seems kind of out of place, and it probably is. Because if you were with us, the last couple weeks, what we saw was, you know, um, David was, you know, he wrote a long psalm that he uh, ended up talking about how good God was, which then flowed into David talking about uh, all of these great heroes of, of his army and people that nobody ever heard of that he wanted to give credit to. So it's kind of him listing these significant people. And all of that seems to have just been plugged in at the end of 2 Samuel, right before the last page, because in 1 Chronicles, those two chapters aren't there and the rest of this stuff is. So When he says again, he's connecting it back, not to chapter 23 or 22, but back to chapter 21, where if you remember that chapter, it's where David ultimately solidified his kingdom and his power. And a part of that was God was upset about what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites had had a treaty with Israel from the time of Joshua But Saul, for some reason, had violated that treaty and gone in and slaughtered a bunch of Gibeonites. Well, now their kids were growing up and now Gibeon could pose a real threat to the next generation, to Solomon. And so it was really important and God let them know. In fact, he made it not rain so that they would figure out, okay, what's going on here? David made things right with the Gibeonites and made peace with them. He also eliminated the members who were left of Saul's family who would pose a threat for the throne. And so he does all of this. And then lastly, in that chapter, he goes and takes out Goliath's sons, who are these giants, because the Philistines were going to be a huge threat to Solomon if these guys were still around, like your dad killed our dad and we're going to kill you. And so, after all of that, the, the deal with the Gibeonites, you know, and, the, and ultimately, as it comes down to this uh, taking care of the Philistines and taking care of the house of Saul, then it says that then God gave David peace over all of his enemies. It's like now the country is more secure than it had ever been in all of history, which was going to be perfect because. The job of Solomon, the next king, was to establish a base of worship, to build a temple. And it was also going to become a place that had connections with the rest of the world. Finally, the kingdom was going to become what God had always promised from way back in Abraham's day. So now when we come to chapter 24, something messes that up. And God gets mad about it. And so what it is, as you read through it, it seems like God is upset that David was going to number the people. Now, when they talk about numbering the people, um, they would line up every eligible soldier. It was kind of like their version of a draft, really. And they would go throughout the land and line every male up who's able to fight And now you know how big your army is. Now you know how powerful you are. Now you're prepared to do what you need to do. And so in this case, and there were plenty of times when God told them to number people because they were about to go to war. But at this point, they weren't about to go to war. At least they shouldn't have been. And yet he numbered the people anyway. Now it's kind of weird the way it's worded here in in verse one that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David, a strange word, and it really isn't there in the original. It's like, you know, God was mad, so David was moved against, you know, what God wanted. Go, number, Israel and Judah. Now, the reason why we know this is a little unusual is that in 1 Chronicles, in the, in the parallel passage over there in 1 Chronicles 21, it actually says Satan told you know, moved on David to make him number the people. So you're like, well, what was it, God or Satan? Well, that passage, First Chronicles 21, is the only place where Satan's even mentioned with a personal name in other than in the book of Job in the whole Old Testament. So you go, okay, not sure exactly what's going on here. But if you take now, you could always go, well, it was there's an error. What it contradicts itself. The thing I love about obvious errors like this in the Bible is that the people who, who the, the scribes who reproduced the Bible had so much respect for the text that whoever wrote it first would have known, you know, the next one would have known. So they certainly wouldn't have written down, well, Satan moved him to do it. Well, no, no, no. You know, it says that God told him or vice versa. So therefore... The Holy Spirit inspired this and gave us this information. How could it be possible that God and the devil caused David to go number the people? And if you think about it, you have to get at the point of why he's numbering the people. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if God's upset with the people, something's wrong. So him numbering the people was going to result in a lot of pain and suffering. So God could be, and again, it's in the English, you don't get the full force of the fact that David was moved and God was somehow involved in it. The devil was somehow involved in it as well. But God didn't make him do this. And the devil didn't make him do this. He was coming up with this on his own, most likely. And yet, you know, certainly the devil would have been like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, do it, do it. devil could be egging him on, while God may be like your wife when you ask her, you know, I was thinking about going and doing this, and she goes, fine, go. I mean, that might be God at this point. He's like, you want to do it? Go for it and see what happens. So that's the best I can make sense of it. It certainly isn't the point of the passage. I just don't want to skip over it as if it doesn't exist as most commentators do. And so, okay, number Israel. So in verse two, the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, and this gives us some information too. He tells him, Joab was with him at the time, and he goes, you know what? Go number the people. It's like what you're saying to a general is go get the people either ready for war or let's see how powerful we really are. And so Joab was the guy you'd would think would be in on it. Joab was a guy who didn't shy away from violence or, you know, he, he always cut corners. He's the guy that killed David's son Absalom who had rebelled against David after he was told not to. But look at his response is really fascinating. Um, he said, you know, go through all the tribes of Israel, Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab in verse three said to the king, Now, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. They were all against it. So Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king, and they went to all these different cities, and they lined up all the troops. It took them, according to verse 8, nine months and 20 days to count these people. And in verse 9, the sum of the number of the people that he reported to the king, in Israel, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. That's in the 10 northern tribes. And in Judah, there were another 500,000, which does give you the idea of Judah, why Judah was so prominent. They were bigger than all the other you know tribes certainly and not not collectively but they were bigger than any other tribe so he goes here's the count now another thing that i just have to tell you is that in chronicles in the same passage the numbers given are significantly different so i'm like what happened now whenever scribes are reproducing text um, numbers are some of the easiest things to mess up in hebrew but at any rate, the numbers aren't important. It's just they counted them. They did it specifically. It's also possible that more numbers came in later, and, and Chronicles gives the overall number where this is the number that they gave right when they came back to David. It doesn't matter. If you're going to worry about that all week, you know, find something more important. But you know, here it is. So what's happening? These guys know this isn't right. Joab knows it. The generals know it, which tips us off. Like, why are you numbering the people? And Joab's response is really kind as he, as he tells them, hey, you know, I hope that there'll be a lot more people than this. And I pray that you'll have every victory possible. And you are great. You don't need to prove that you're great. You don't need numbers to show that you're great. We're good. We're fine. And here Joab, and partly it's personally because he's a general. I mean, David is retired from the military at this point because in the the last time he tried to fight, he almost got himself killed. So they're like, here's your gold watch. Stay home at the next war. But all this had happened. And Joab's like, when you're lining them up, I know what comes next. These guys that, you know, they're going to be putting their life on the line for you. Do you really need that just for your ego? Do you really need that just so that you can feel better? Or are you thinking, maybe it's time we took Lebanon. Maybe it's time we took Syria. Maybe it's time we expanded further. And whatever it was, it's like, no, we have the land that God has given us. Is that ever enough? And so, you know, Joab called him on it, but he did it anyway. So like, okay, what comes next? You've numbered the people. Now what are you going to do? Well, David is an interesting guy because in verse 10, his heart condemned him. After he had numbered the people, isn't it interesting that God told him, fine, go do it. The devil told him, great idea. And now that he's done it within his own heart, he's like, I don't feel good about this. It lets you know that there was some motive that he had that was, that was less than what it should have been, certainly, but he doesn't go into detail. After he had numbered the people, so David went to the Lord in verse 10, and he said, I have sinned greatly. This was really wrong, what I did. I know it, what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. God, I did a really stupid thing. Now, can we unwind that? The problem is, you've lined up, you know, all these soldiers, you know, a million and a half soldiers, and now they're like, okay, we're waiting for orders. You can't just say, never mind. You know, it's like, but he's like, God, can we just forget about that? A lot of times the things we do, when you realize it was stupid, you still can't undo it. And so David you know, prayed that to God and he got up in the morning and God didn't even talk to him. But God came to the prophet Gad in verse 11, who was David's seer. That is, Gad was kind of David's personal chaplain. And he, God said, go tell David, verse 12, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. He goes, there's a price you're going to pay, and you know what? I'm going to let you choose. Door number one, door number two, or door number three. Door number one, you know, as he said to him, you can have seven years of famine. That's your choice. Now, for David personally, a famine's not going to affect him. And by the way, in First Chronicles passage, it says three years of famine, which is probably... The accurate one, because it's three, three, and three. And so um, probably Chronicles got it right, but who knows? If it's it's seven, it's also three. But they didn't pick it anyway, so whatever was behind door number one didn't really matter. But famine's not going to affect David, but it's going to affect the people. And he probably would feel like, oh, that's horrible, because I don't pay the price, the people pay the price. Behind door number two, do you want to run from your enemies for three months? Well, they pursue you. That's a bad choice. But again, it doesn't affect David's life personally. He loses his soldiers because of it. He's going to be safe in Jerusalem. Three months, they can't take the whole nation. They'll probably just pick away at the fringes. Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Some epidemic that's going to come and take out a lot of people for. Just three days, and it's amazing how many people can die in three days, as you see here. So he said, "Consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me." So God's like, "Okay, door number one, door number two, door number three, David. What are you going to do? That's what God wants you to know." And he goes, "You want to be in control? You want to make decisions? You want to be responsible? Be responsible for this. Pick one." And David actually doesn't really pick one. It turned out to be closest that the that the third one was the one that happened. But David said to Gad, and this is kind of a cool response, I'm in great distress. My heart's broken. But let us not fall into the, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of man. He goes, tell God that we'll do whatever he wants to do. But our one request is, I would rather have my consequence be from God and for him to use somebody else to dish out the consequences. And so it says, the Lord in verse 15 sent a plague among upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, presumably for 3 days, from Dan to Beersheba, during that time 70,000 men of the people died. And so 70,000 that's a lot, although we know there are some sicknesses that killed that many people, especially in a land that had maybe 3 million Jews in it. But it was still devastating. But when they got to Jerusalem, probably worked their way down to the south. When they got to Jerusalem, he stretched out his hand over Jerusalem in verse 16 to destroy it. The Lord relented from the destruction. God goes, that's enough. That's okay. I don't want you to take out Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now you can, there are a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about God relenting, repenting, changing his mind. Um, I'm just not, it says what it says. I'm just not gonna make excuses for it or act like it doesn't mean anything. This is what it says. God's like, no, that's good. We're good. And so he said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Now Araunah had a threshing floor that was right there in Jerusalem. You're circling almost around David's palace. It's just to the side of his palace. And what this threshing floor was, was a flat area at the top of the hill there in Jerusalem. Now, as it turns out, and by the way, if you read the Chronicles passage, he's called um, Ornan instead of Arauna. But there's something weird here because the name Arauna in this passage is spelled like four different ways in Hebrew. So he was probably called both names at any rate. But the land that was there, the threshing floor, you know, where the threshing floor is where you would bring the grain, smack it up, break it loose. Toss it up in the air, and the good grain comes down, and the other stuff blows away. So, it was a place where there was a breeze. It was a place that was prominent. It was a place that we know as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you, you know, when you, if you ever go with us to Israel or if you've ever been there, you know that place is so prominent. It's like, whoa, there it is right there. Well, at this point, it's just a place where they thrashed wheat. But as it turns out, David's palace is just right down the hill from it. And here's this cool mountain. Now, according to the Jewish rabbis, this mountain, this hill, this place, this threshing floor, originally was the place where Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices way back in Genesis 4. It also is is said to be the place where Abraham came to offer Isaac. It was then the place where Solomon would build the temple and it 's the place where again, as Jesus returns he 's heading right up there it 's also the place where Jesus taught, he cleansed it, and he was brought there in order to be you know punished and, and ultimately hauled up the hill a little bit more on the mountains of Moriah in order to be killed, probably just just up uphill from this threshing floor but so it 's a prominent place um, it 's the place where um, today there's the uh, the Dome of the Rock that's there. The Muslims believe that this is where, you know, Muhammad ended up ascending into heaven. And so it's an important place. So now God says, this is where I am and I have something for you to do. And so as God was there, David spoke to the Lord. He saw the angel striking the people and he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. He said, this is on me. These people don't deserve this. And that's the heart of, of, a, of a godly man for sure who would rather take the suffering himself because he understands their suffering partly because of him, partly because they maybe had been ambitious as well. But he cries out to God and, and Gad came that day to David in verse 18 and said, go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. He goes, God wants you to build an altar right there. Why there? Obviously God's plans were later and always God's looking back, man, that place was special. It always has been. It's going to continue to be special. And so God told them to do that, and which was the first step and later on in in uh, first chronicles you see that david began collecting all the stuff to build the temple where solomon ultimately built it so david according to the word of gad in verse 19 went up as the lord commanded and arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming he goes "Uh uh-oh and he went out bowed down before the king with his face to the ground arana said why has my lord the king come to his servant he's like what uh, what can I do for you? Can I help you? It's nice to meet you. I mean, we're neighbors, but we don't really know each other. And so David said, I want to buy the threshing floor from you. And he's like, well, what kind of price are we talking about? No, he, not at all. He said, I want to build an altar to the Lord there so that the plague will be withdrawn from the people. Now, Arana said to David, let my Lord, the king, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. He goes, you can use it. You can build an altar. You can do anything you want. He goes on and says, look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. He goes, you can have it all in verse 23. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And he said, may the Lord your God accept you. I hope this goes well. So Araunah, of course, it's David. It's like he wants to do a sacrifice here on my threshing floor. I can find other places to thresh wheat. This is my king. And so David's like, I want to build an altar here. He's like, please. And I'm not going to accept your payment. But this shows us so much about David. It's, this is a fascinating scripture that I just have going through my head often. Um, the king said to Araunah, no but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David said, if you give it to me, that cheapens the level of sacrifice that I am going to make there. And so I can't have you just like, oh, here, it's just fine, it's a perk, feel free to take it. He goes, when I make a sacrifice to God, I want it to be a sacrifice I want it to mean something. And so he said, we'll pay for it. So he bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, over the years, it turns out that was a bargain, but back then it was a fair price. And David built there an altar to Yahweh, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And that's the end of 2 Samuel So from this last unusual chapter, what lessons do we get? That's always the question when we read the scriptures. One of the first things that I think you see going on here, because you have to get back to what's this whole deal with numbering the people? What's he trying to do? We saw three chapters ago that they had peace, that all of their enemies were basically gone and they were secure. What made him number the people? Was it to gloat? Was it to show off, or is he just thinking, maybe we'll take some more land? We're on a roll here, certainly, the army's good at fighting. we've got good numbers and Joab, how about let's just for old time's sake, let's just go wipe out some other civilization let's expand. let's take you know Asia Minor while we're at it. let's go and take syria let's go Let's go somewhere else. How does that happen? See. And here's the thing you have to think about. If you live without ambition, you'll never get anywhere. There are people who never get anywhere because they never have a sense of, hey, I could do more than I'm doing. I could do something else. Ambition is something that the scriptures make very clear, absolutely necessary for God's people to be ambitious. But there's a point where ambition turns into greed there's a point where you lose your ability to draw margins and borders and say you know what we're in a good place right now i think many of us deal with those kinds of issues because we you know we feel like and maybe we feel like oh man i wish i had worked harder when i was younger but now i've got to make up and catch up and i'm here and you never know what's going to happen with the economy so i need a little more and a little more and a little more and our entire economic system is built on people never getting satisfied. It's designed to make everybody feel like you need to do more. And so we get that ingrained into us. Now, there are some people who never do anything. That's a complete waste of a life. People without ambition, without a vision, the people perish. And that's certainly true. But even people who have godly ambition have to learn that okay there's a point there's a place where what i want to do is everything that god has called me to do but i don't want to just keep thinking that it means just more and more bigger and better jesus talked about the guy who was so successful in his business that he kept he was a farmer and he kept he didn't have room for all of the crops, and so he said, I'm going to build more barns and more barns, and Jesus said, you, the, the God said, to you idiot, you're going to die tomorrow. How many barns do you need to do that? And I think for all of us, that can happen. It's one of the reasons why one of the biggest industries in our country is the storage industry, because get stuff we don't even need, but I can't get rid of it, because you never know when I might need it. And You know, And it's always like, okay, I need to get promoted to my level of incompetency, like the Peter principle says. If I can get a better job, I'm going to get it, and then I'm going to get a better job, and then I'm going to get a bigger house, and a better house, and a bigger car, a better car. And all that comes from a real good desire that gets carried away. We should always have ambition to do everything that God has called us to do. But at the same time, we should always be checking that ambition so that it just doesn't turn into greed. And with David, it would seem at this point in his life, should have been a time when he was just enjoying all that God had done. God had given them peace. Now he has a son who's brilliant, who's going to take over. And that should have taken all of his energy, mentoring Solomon and preparing him for the even greater things that God was going to do. But he's just like, yeah, we haven't counted the soldiers in a while. I wonder, what what do we got here? For for guys to go work for a year and a half, just to come up with a number? I doubt if that was it. But he's probably thinking, you know, I miss war. Let's go do another one. The world so often is controlled by people that never have enough, by empire building that's like, okay, I have this, but I want more. It's why Solomon ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, I've had only one wife my whole life. I'm satisfied. <laughs> but, you know, there's always something within us that starts imagining. What would that be like? And so, and so this it seems like that's his thing. So for us, I think when we look at this, this story hinges on the transition from ambition to greed. If you aren't ambitious, that's a serious problem. But if your ambition has just turned into greed, that in itself is a devastating problem. And a lot of other people are going to suffer because of it. And in this story, we also see the truth that when leaders mess up, it's their people who suffer. It's usually not the leaders that suffer that much. You, you've seen we've seen in the corporate world where somebody who is making horrible decisions and the business completely falls apart and tons of people are without work and people who have invested have nothing, but the leaders had golden parachutes and they're just fine. They'll bounce right back. And see that's true too. But it's one of the reasons why we should use every you know influence that we have in selecting our leaders when we live in a country where that's a part of our responsibility as citizens. We shouldn't take lightly the idea that when our leaders mess up, we're going to pay for that. And a lot of other innocent people are going to pay for it. Be easy if it was like, okay, leaders mess up, leaders get punished. David, the leader messes up, innocent people are being killed. So that's something. And every one of us is a leader in one way or another. Someone looks to us. We are an example to someone. We have input into someone's life. And we need to remember, we can't afford to just be careless and sloppy. And we can't afford to be greedy. Because ultimately, that's going to affect people besides just us. And it's probably going to hit them harder than it even hits us. But really, when you look at this story, it all comes back to where it ends with worship It all comes back to sacrifice. We don't like to talk too much about sacrifice. But remember, everything from when God told Cain and Abel to sacrifice, ever since then, God's been talking about sacrifice. Because letting go of something that's valuable to you, letting go of something that's precious, and offering it to God is the closest thing that we will have to understanding what he did for us when he sent his son to be sacrificed for us. We share in the sufferings of Christ because by us making a sacrifice, we go, wow, for them. I have an expensive lamb, my favorite lamb, the best lamb I have, I'm going to sacrifice it. Is it because somehow that does something for you? Not so much, but it's that it gives you an awareness that sacrifice is a huge part of living in a fallen world, in a broken world. And it's ultimately what would happen. It's the ultimate picture of, like in Isaiah 53, that amazing statement about Messiah and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can't understand Jesus if you don't understand sacrifice, but that's why God talks about sacrifice so that we can have an analogy. I know what it's like to let go of something that's important to me. And that's life in a lot of ways. Now, I was thinking about this last part of the chapter this week. Are you going to give God something that costs you nothing? David said, it wouldn't be worship if this is something that's easy, if this is something that costs me nothing the essence of a relationship with him involves a sacrifice. It involves expense to some degree. Now, I was, this week, um, this coming week, I'm heading back to North Carolina to do a memorial service for Betty Holderman, who's gone to be with the Lord. And I I was going to fly back, but then I just thought, you know what, I could use some time with the Lord. And my wife can't ride in the car yet because of her back, so I'm like, you know, this could be, it'd be good for me to just spend a few days with the Lord driving across this great country of ours, seeing where everybody's running to from California. But I love our country. And so I'm, the more I've thought about it, I've been thinking, I'm looking forward to just getting out there on the road with the Lord. I need it. And so I'm excited about it, but I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and I was telling him what I was doing, and he goes, oh, man, he goes, look, here, take my company credit card. He said, I don't want you staying in some flea bag motels. I don't want you eating crappy fast food. Everything, your gas, your hotels, your everything, just put it on my card. And I go, oh, that's really sweet. I thanked him. But then, you know, as I left, I started thinking about this passage that I was studying this week. And I'm like, that would be easy, but I don't want someone else to pay the price for me to worship God. I, I need myself, if this was true of David, it needs to be true of me, that at some point I have to give something that costs me something, not just let somebody else pay my way. Now, in church, a lot of times this is kind of the way it is. We, most of the research says that 80% of the money to operate a church comes from 10% of the people who come to the church. So 90% of the people in the church are not contributing anywhere close to their share of things because we have the idea that like worship is just about, oh, I'm going to come and sing a song. Yeah, I'm going to come and yeah that might help out a little bit. I might do this or I might do that. But actually giving in a way that's sacrificial People don't understand that, even though that's the point of worship in the Bible by far. Now, we don't talk about it, and I don't talk about it because it kind of, there are people, because of the prosperity gospel and everything, there are people who, like, push you to give, 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 because, and they ironically do it selfishly. You need to give so God will give back to you. God's, for him, it's like, you need to give because it hurts, and I'm not giving it back to you. I'm burning it up and letting it go up into heaven. Are you willing to worship me like that? Now, for the people who do support the ministry of the church, certainly God rewards them. But to the degree to which we're freeloaders in worship, we're not really understanding worship at all. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh. Yeah, I am. I'm sorry if it sounds harsh, but it probably should sound harsh because This is the essence of a relationship with God. How can we understand worshiping Him if we ourselves aren't the ones who say, and I'm doing this in a way that costs me because He's worth it. And that's really important. I know, like at our church, we don't like to charge for anything. So we have lunches and breakfasts and you know, events and everything, and we're always like, yeah, it's free, it's free, it's free. It's not free. But the question, why do we do that? Because frankly, there are people who, it's not that they don't have the money, they'll pay it for Netflix or something, but oh, it's like, if it's free, I'll do it. And that misses a, a huge point. And so there are times when I think, maybe we are too bending over backwards to give people a free ride. It doesn't do you a favor to give a free ride and have an easy, cheap version of worship that costs you nothing. David understood that. He's the man after God's heart. He's the man who Jesus goes, yep, I'm related to him. And so this is, for me, a lesson that we have to learn. It's especially relevant today, as it's the first Sunday of the month, and we're going to celebrate communion. You ever think about that? That Jesus told us, I don't ever want you to get very far beyond my broken body, and my shed blood. I want that to be a reminder to you constantly. Now, do you think he wanted us to remember it so that we'd go, oh, thank God it happened to you and not me? Or do you think he may understand that in many ways, if you are truly following him and you are truly treating him the, what he, the way he is worth, that it's going to cost you something and that that's okay because it's worth it. He is worthy of that. I I think this is something that communion is really, that's the perspective. You don't take communion to go, I'm glad you died and not me. And I've heard, heard people say, he suffered so you don't have to. Have you like ever been alive? Do you understand that it's about suffering anyway? But it's really a question of, can you commit your suffering to him? Or can you take a shortcut and do everything you can to avoid suffering? It's, there's an entire addiction industry that's that way. Here, let me just save you from the consequences of life. And, or do we embrace life as he gives it and say, he suffered so that I can suffer too. That's something that doesn't make sense if you're selfish. It doesn't make sense if you have moved somehow from, from being, uh, you know, somebody who has plans to somebody who becomes greedy. But when you really understand Jesus, you really understand his sacrifice for us, then a lot of other things end up making sense. Again, I, I'm not saying that so you'll give more money. It wouldn't, that wouldn't last very long. Probably do one offering and more money would come in and then everybody goes back to where their heart really is. I just want to challenge you and me to say, what is worship? What is worship? really mean to you? What does it mean that when you worship, you are remembering a broken body and shed blood? Because that's the essence of what it is to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful truths that you reveal to us in this ancient book. And God, we're There are times when we just have no ambition. (laughs) We know that's not right. But there are times when we won't limit our ambitions in humility and we become greedy. There are times when we think other people should suffer so that we can have a free ride. And there are times when we just want to worship you as cheaply as we possibly can. You've given us this example of David, that a person after your heart Doesn't do that, even though it seems like the most natural thing. Hey, make it easy for me, and I don't care what it is for somebody else. Lord, we want to be people of your heart. We want to be those who understand fully what it means to worship you. That it doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to go spend some time with the Lord, and it's going to be easy. That it can mean flat tires, it can be getting lost, it can make all sorts of other things that could happen, but you're worth whatever it is we go through in order to spend quality time in your presence. Thank you for teaching us that. Thank you that on that spot where this altar was made, that was purchased, that it's the same spot you're going to rule and reign from someday. Help us to be your people.